Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Uncomplication Podcast. This podcast is shared with you now in the same spirit that one would share music. That is to say that when someone gets on stage and performs music, they don't do so with the intent of improving the audience or changing anyone's opinions on anything. Uh, Music is played purely for the enjoyment of playing and listening to music. This is podcast number two, and it is the first in which we interview an interesting individual. Uh, In this case, Stephen Hatch, who is a uh, photographer, nature writer, uh, poet, and just inspirational uh, person here in Fort Collins, Colorado. Uh, Just a little bit from Stephen's bio. Uh, Stephen Hatch has taught in the Religious Studies Department at Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. He considers himself a sort of worldly monk dedicated to perceiving and sharing the wonders of life through the practices of silence, solitude, deep listening, meditation, contemplative prayer, community, and a simple lifestyle. He has a Bachelor's of Arts in Religious Studies from Colorado State University with a minor in Natural Resources and a Master's in Religion from the Lyft School of Theology. Uh, I had the extreme privilege of hanging out with Stephen over an afternoon and um, just letting our conversation kind of wander in and out of these ideas of uh, silence and listening and space. And uh, it's my privilege now to share this Uncomplication podcast with you all. Enjoy. Cool. Well, um, you feel like getting started? Certainly. Great. I think it's interesting that when you meet people, oftentimes there's some story that you recite. People ask, you know, who are you? What do you do? What do you, what do you answer when people ask what you do? Uh, I search for the meaning of life. That's always been my quest. Um, I decided probably 30 years ago I wanted to try to do what the monks do, except in everyday life. I had spent some time at a monastery um, in Snowmass, Colorado, and so uh, I wanted, at the time there was a book that came out, Ordinary People as Monks and Mystics, that was back in the 80s. So I decided I wanted to try to live a contemplative life in the everyday world, raising a family. And uh, so I started an office cleaning business for manual labor and time to think and meditate and pray. and then would spend afternoons uh, up in the foothills in solitude and silence and meditation and the exercise and um, taught in a small community and uh, did a lot of study of the spiritual classics and and tried to live a spiritual life myself. Um, So it's been a long project. Wow. So what made you pursue that in the first place? Was that something you always had an interest in? or was it... I think I was fascinated by monks and um, the sense that here were some of the most educated people in the world but doing manual labor, cleaning stables and uh, gardening and farm work and making beer and uh, all kinds of other manual labor jobs and uh, that was intimately connected with their spirituality wasn't like there was some kind of a hierarchy. So that attracted me, but just the lifestyle of the silence and the simplicity and um, getting away from some of the more complicated aspects of the 
corporate industrial system. Um, that really attracted me. I wanted to find out why are we here, you know, and um, what is the meaning of it all. So that really has been my life for a long time. Yes. And uh, wow, there's a lot of interesting things that you've already <laughs> brought up. Um, I guess I'll just jump at the, the closest one. So having been on this search for a while now, do you feel you've discovered what you set out to look for initially? Yes, it's always a process and it's endless and uh, the journey keeps changing and life keeps throwing you new challenges. But yeah, I've, uh, I have a, a worldview and a set of practices I do and I, and I have a belief system that's come out of that. So, yeah, I, I have. I'm kind of busting full of, of things that I want to teach. I teach at Naropa University as an adjunct, um, one course, and I just, I love that. I love teaching what I've discovered, especially for people who are hungry. Yeah. Yeah. When you meet people that are hungry, uh, what is it usually that they're bringing that, that they feel needs fixing, or what is the what is the problem that most people, is there? I think they wonder if this is, our society, is this all there is, just um, living and making money and existing and maybe having a family and buying a house and all of that. They kind of want to know more, what are we here for? What's the bigger picture? Um, is society, is, is humanity going to extinguish itself? You know, a lot of people wonder, is humanity just a scourge on the earth, you know? Um, or do we have some kind of higher or deeper purpose, you know, as a part of the whole? So I think that's a lot of what people are asking. Hmm. Yeah. Was that your initial question as well? My initial question, um, I followed the Christian contemplative path for a long time, so I wanted to know, I wanted to experience union with the source, union with God, which, which is a term used in the Christian mystical tradition, but um, I wanted that sense of union, that sense of being a part of a bigger whole, um, that sense that the divine was living through me and through others, and especially in the natural world, because nature's always been a place of revelation for me. Um, so I, I really wanted to experience union in a world that often appears disjointed. Is there a deeper oneness to all of it? And so that's always been a major part of the quest for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that um, source of inspiration that can be found in nature just by getting out of the normal human colony and going up in the hills. Uh, do you find that the day-to-day -day grind, the scourge that a lot of people are living in with the, the jobs and the interpersonal politics and those things, does it somehow make sense when put into a, a more natural context? Is the wisdom that's out there also here in this kitchen? Yes, it is. But I think it takes a certain amount of retreat time to access that because mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of the, in the background, it's the backdrop if, if you think of the ground of being out of which everything emerges, it's like a ground and, and um, it's covered over by all sorts of growth, societal growth. So it takes a certain stripping away to get to it. But yes, once you find it, uh, you, do, you, you are able to find it in everyday life. And 
I think that the listening that I experience in the silence in nature carries over into everyday life to where one wants to listen to what others have to say because one feels so deeply listened to um, in the natural world in that silence. It's a very rich kind of silence and people hunger to be listened to and I think it's absolutely fascinating how everyone has a different story and um, I really believe the divine presence listens to and learns from us and so we're meant to do the same with others, mm -hmm. listen to and learn. When we listen to our own thoughts all day, it gets rather tiring. Um, it's wonderful to, to hear what others have to say and to ask the right questions to be able to access the, the deepest part of themselves. And so I find that a wonderful part of living in society mm. is meeting all different kinds of people and finding out what, what their experience is. Uh, so that, that actually brings up something that I was interested in hearing your opinions on. Um, you know, there's a lot of people out there who feel the world is one way or another way, and everyone you talk to has a different sure. um, worldview, as you called it. Um, how have you been able to embrace everybody's worldview and make that something new? Well, I think life is fascinating that way because everybody has a different worldview. And I think that each person and each spiritual tradition and each culture has a different puzzle piece that contributes to the whole. Um, it's not at all like the New Age thing that says they're all really saying the same thing at root. They're, they're not, necessarily. And they all don't have to conflict. Um, but I think one of the great adventures in life is trying to see how they all fit together. How do the, all the different perspectives, how are they pieced together? And I'm talking about serious perspectives of people who are really reflecting on life and what does it mean. Um, yeah, that's one of the great projects of our time is to value all of the different perspectives and to see how they fit. Mm -hmm. And not at all just to pretend that they're the same. You see that bumper sticker, uh, what does it say? Coexist. Coexist. And yeah. I always think, how uh, mediocre. You know, we're not meant to just coexist. We're meant to really learn from each other. And I love the process of taking different worldviews and sorting through them and seeing what can I use and what can I set on the shelf or let go of. I like that process. It's, so it's not at all just saying, well, it's all okay. It's a matter of um, sorting through it all. I believe very much there's two kinds of wisdom in Christian mystical tradition. There's logos wisdom, which is sort of masculine wisdom, which sort of sorts through and, and um, uh, analyzes and looks for the truth in something and then um, sets the other aside. And then there's Sophia wisdom, which is more feminine wisdom, which takes what you have gleaned from each perspective and fits it together mm. into a larger whole. And obviously everybody's going to have a different whole a different larger whole but that too is fascinating the Quaker tradition on my mom's side really influenced me growing up in Pennsylvania Quakers really believed that there's that inner light in everybody and um, it's very much a process of listening and at the monastery I also learned very much about listening and so um, people desperately want to be listened to um, you, Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. I think it's more, I am listened to, therefore I am. When someone listens to you and learns from you, you find a power to become who you really are in a way you never knew before. 
how do you think that fits into the current world where the listening is happening in this online space with Facebook comments and websites and blogs? Do you think it's the um, the human interaction and the listening has changed because there's so many voices now? I mean, how how does a voice get heard? Yeah, there are so many voices. I think that. I mean, I never thought that I would be using social media or the computer that much a few years ago, but now I find it indispensable. Um, I think it's one of the places to listen to others. You don't get the full message, and it's easy to have misunderstandings, just like it is with email, because you can't hear tone of voice or see body language. Um, so it has to be, I think we have to have a certain light touch with each other and realize we might mistakenly communicate something that we didn't mean to, or it might be taken wrong. But I think, yeah, it's here to stay as far as I know, social media and email and all of that. So it's definitely a way of communicating. I'm not real fond of texting because <laughs> I find it even easier to have a miscommunication that way. Uh, but Facebook is a wonderful tool. Huh. Yeah, my mind is just going to the strange place where I, when I sit here with you, I can feel the human presence that we each have, and we can really share the experience of this room and this moment together. Yeah. And it's interesting that a lot of people communicate, even with their wives and you know husbands and friends, uh, through these, as you kind of describe them, you know, non-emoting uh, text <laughs> messages and those types of things. And, well, it's definitely uh, not as full and rich of a communication. Growing up in Pennsylvania, there were a lot of Amish around, and Amish didn't even like to use telephones, except for business, precisely because you couldn't uh, see body language. And I wonder what they would, must think of email. <laughs> well, you can't hear a tone of voice either. So I think as long as we still have connections that are in person, Social media is okay. If all we have is social media and cell phones, I think that is problematic. Hmm. So I'm curious, uh, you, you described sort of your background and this, um, I don't know how you would term it, but I guess quest of sorts that you've been on. And in your daily life, does that continue? Is that still, you wake up each morning and, and it's continuing the search? I mean, what, what does a day look like for you? I have increasing amounts of time spent being mindful of the beauties of nature and seeking each day to find what's beautiful that day. Mm. Actually, I feel more like it stalks me. Mm. Uh, sometimes I think I'm going to get a break from natural beauty, but there's <laughs> just always something that is absolutely stunning. And that's one of the reasons I think we're here on this earth is to have a two-way relationship with all things. Um, in this case, a two-way relationship with nature, also a two-way relationship with our own thoughts. Um, we've lost so much of a sense of relationship in our culture by limiting it only to people and maybe pets. Hmm. We're meant to have um, interrelationship or interbeing, as Thich Nhat Hanh would call it, with all of reality. And so, for me, nature, people say, oh, I li love your photos, you're talented, and I feel like saying, well, okay, that's nice, but uh, really I feel like the beauty stalks me hmm. and, and, and wants, to, wants to be seen. 
So that increasingly is more and more part of my day is looking for that beauty and seeking to share that with others. Because we live in a society where there's a lot of stress, um, a lot of the impersonal, and a lot of what people think is ugliness. So I think it's important to reveal the beauty that's around us each day. And some people are more skilled at doing that with people shots. I am, I am especially called to do it with nature. That's interesting, the um, perception that you described that people have of the world as containing a lot of ugliness. Where do you think that feeling comes from? Well, I think we're surrounded by things that are manufactured and made by people in mass assembly. I think also, so there's, there's not always a lot of the natural world around us which indigenous cultures always had to inspire them toward more cosmic perspectives. I think that also people feel they live in a world where they have very little control. Um, insurance companies control uh, what doctors they can go to or how much they'll pay. Uh, corporations seem to have so much say. I mean, corporations influence our elections. Um, and I think people are not always at their best in society because they're stressed. And when people are stressed, the worst comes out in them. So, and it keeps, I mean, we used to call it the rat race, that sense that things just keep going faster and faster. So I think all of that gets perceived as a certain amount of ugliness and people hunger for something more. Are there any things that you would say are ugly? What do you think is ugly? I think that um, intolerance and uh, not appreciating others. Uh, I grew up in a fundamentalist background where our particular group believed it was the only one that's right. I think that attitude of thinking one's perspective is the only one that's right. In fact, not even knowing one has a perspective, but thinking that one looks at life through clear glasses, I think that's a certain ugliness. Mm. Yeah. But it can be transformed, hmm. like all things. So it's interesting, I've heard you talk a little bit about your background and you know Quakers and fundamentalists. Do you think that was part of what propelled you outside of the main systems to kind of find your own? What was that transformation like? What, what was the moment that... Yes. Um, growing up in southeast Pennsylvania, it was kind of a hotbed of non-institutionalized in that case, Christianity. You had a group called the Contemplative Spirituals who were uh, who believed that the divine is present whenever two or three are gathered. Hmm. And they believed in what they called the invisible church. Then you had uh, um, Quakers who, you know, founded the state, who met in silence and believed that every person is a priest, no matter who they are. The divine dwells equally in everyone. You had Amish and Mennonites who maybe kept to themselves, especially the Amish, but believed that um, every person had um, the, the divine presence within them. So that definitely affected me growing up um, in a positive way. The fundamentalist background was a conservative Baptist church, and I definitely gained some positive things from that. But the negative is when somebody else tells you the way it is. Um, 
and what that does to a person. Um, I determined after that time that I never wanted to do that to someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, especially when you're in a role of some kind of a spiritual leadership, um, it's very important to be aware of your own biases and it's really important to be aware of the other person and what they need. So I'm a big fan of personality typology. For example, I study the Enneagram and teach it, which uh, is a system that helps understand what, what makes each person tick. What do they need? So yeah, my background really did influence my desire to see um, what's sacred in every person and to listen and um, to, to, to gain wisdom from others. So I'm, I'm just curious, um, why do you post on Facebook every day? I mean, what is it a... I post the uh, photos of beautiful aspects of nature including forest fire burns, which I love, um, <clears throat> and my thoughts, because I want people to be inspired. I really am fulfilled when people feel inspired and they go through their day uh, happy. And um, to see something more of the grandeur and majesty of life. And I love words. I absolutely love words, but I like to play with words and um, use them in unique kinds of ways. And that leads to silence. Silence and words are not opposite. Um, the more skillfully words are the, the more skillful means that words are used, the more it leads you to a sense of awe and wonder, which is precisely what, the, what is in the silence. And then the silence leads you to want to try to express it somehow um, the best way that you can. So I, I really love both words and silence. I think they need each other. Hmm. Yeah. Let's talk about silence. All right, let's talk about silence. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> uh, it's just, it's kind of funny. You know, how do you talk about silence? Tell me silence. Well, silence is always there when you're talking. Yeah. <laughs> if you had no silence, you could not talk. It's sort of like earlier talking about the backdrop that things come out of. Yeah. I love that we, we sat down here and we could have talked about anything. But uh-huh. We happened to just have this conversation, but there's always that potential for anything to come next. And that's sort of the backdrop. That's right. You don't know. You don't know what will come next. But silence is always present. Um, in everything. You could never destroy the silence because nothing could be without the silence. So, Hmm. yeah, silence is such a rich, rich reality. It's interesting because we were recording today and we were trying to find a place to go. And I know just as sort of a half-baked musician who likes to record sometimes that it's incredibly hard to find a quiet place you're very fortunate to kind of be here on the the north side of town, but yeah. I think a lot of people live in a world where silence is really hard to come by. Yeah. And I, I wonder what that what that does to people, and if there's a way to find to find silence in in the sound, almost like the roar of the ocean, isn't silent, but it's got that same sort of depth to it. 
Yeah, well, I think everyone needs times when they take some space away from the busyness in order to just be quiet and to listen to the inspirations that come up out of the heart. <clears throat> the silence is kind of like the ground out of which the seeds sprout. I mean, here we're just emerging from winter, and we need the winter. Uh, everything rests, and it's nourished by the snow. And then, lo and behold, everything comes popping out of that silent ground. So, yeah, silence is one of the things that attracted me to the monastery in the first place, was all of the silence. Um, absolutely amazing. I, I've noticed that people, and myself included, um, often sort of shrink back from the silence because, maybe it is because it is such an unknown kind of place, but I mean, a lot of people, they have headphones in all the time, or they're always... You know, even when they have an opportunity to be silent, they're they're not. And even, I mean, I know I'm I'm always chattering when I wish I'd, I'd just be quiet. But I, I wonder what it is about that sort of negative principle, that 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 mystery that um, is so amazing to behold, but also something that people, by and large, um, shrink away from at times. I think that we have so little awareness of what the silence really is because we practice it so little. But maybe if silence is just viewed as an object, as mm -hmm. a kind of emptiness that nothing is happening in, people get bored with it. But if silence is actually a presence and has a subjectivity to it, if silence is divine listening, if silence is, as India would say, divine bliss, uh, if silence is a kind of ground out of which everything appears, that has a presence and subjectivity to it, then suddenly the whole world opens up, that there's this listening constantly going on all around us. That's what we experience when we go into the natural world. We find the power to have insights we never realized we had. And that's because in the silence we are listened to so profoundly. So I think that we treat it as some kind of an object, inanimate object, instead of having a subjectivity all of its own. So silence grasps us. Or as Max Picard said in his famous book, The World of Silence, silence looks at us more than we look at silence. Mm. So um, it's a very rich reality. How, how does silence and meditation or contemplation go hand in hand in your mind? I think silence is the essence of meditation. Um, it's as though our awareness, our consciousness is like a still harbor, the water, but it's covered up say one of those Asian harbors where there's all the merchants in those little boats and you could step from boat to boat without even hardly knowing the water's there. So um, the boats represent our thoughts and emotions and projects and plans and worries and all that stuff we're filled with all day. And we just step from boat to boat and we forget that all along there's this amazing water that underlies it all, that supports it all. That's our consciousness or our participation in the sacred. <clears throat> so meditation enables us to let go of our attachment 
to <clears throat> the boats or the thoughts in order to come in contact with the water that's underneath. Mm. The, the great lake of being or the, the great ocean of being. And um, you don't have to create it. It's already there. So all meditation methods enable us to let go of our preoccupation with our thoughts, not in order to empty our minds and get rid of the thoughts, but to see the thoughts in a new context, which is, isn't this amazing? All the thoughts are appearing as though magically on this great ocean or lake of being. So our thoughts and emotions become magical. How could they even appear at all? And all of the great meditative traditions have that kind of um, awareness at their root, almost like an echo emerging with no original word uh, or mirror images on the great mirror of life without there being any original that the mirror image came from. That's what life is like. So yeah, silence is, is of the essence of meditation. Do you think people need or should be searching to bring these extra things into their into their lives? Is there a... I don't think there's a should to it. I think eventually something happens in a person's life where things don't work anymore. <clears throat> For some of us, it happens pretty early. For others, it doesn't happen till later. And that causes us to say, hmm, I wonder if there's something deeper that grounds it all. Mm. Um, so I don't think it's a sense of should... I think a person should live their life naturally, and when the question arises, it, it will. Uh, I certainly wouldn't wish suffering on anyone to, to you know, to stimulate uh, the journey. Uh, there's the Canada goose on the clock. <laughs> but I think it's just a natural that, and people are going to seek uh, the, the deeper in their own way. I mean, I think science is a root to wonder, to awe and wonder. Good science is very spiritual. I mean, you just look at, as you were talking about, the vast eras of geological time and to lose yourself in those. If, if part of what we want to do is to, to enable our own individual self or ego self to become transparent instead of seem so solid, which is the source of so many of our problems. We feel our emotions are so solid and our identity is so solid and it bounces up like a marble against all the other marbles mm. and it it's, uh, causes suffering. If we can see through it to the transparency, um, to something bigger, wow, silent science can sure help us with that, mm. especially geological perspectives. Yeah, yeah. Uh, billions of years of earth history that just dwarf your your sense of your little life i don't find that um disconcerting i think that's yeah. amazing because we all want to get some liberation from that solid self that we're constantly preoccupied with that bumps against everyone else's sense of solid self so science i think well done is a very spiritual pursuit. Hmm. I mean, that's what originally drew me to it so strongly was just that sense of blowing apart any kind of concept that I had to contain something like looking at a Hubble telescope photo of galaxies <laughs> deeper than you can yeah. see. I mean, that um, exploding <laughs> of yeah. just sort of the human day-to-day you know, people and chairs and tables and cars and that, that view of the world to all of a sudden this ginormous context that we can't yeah. put it in. 
But it's interesting because like all things, there's a balance of the awe and wonder that drive a lot of the best scientists to really go into it. You know, they're, they're going with a curiosity and a question. And then there's a usefulness that comes out of that. So then people take those discoveries and they use it. Mm. Um, when I was getting my um, education and, uh, you know, a scientific education, I always was so disheartened that the textbooks might, if you were lucky, include a little, you know, three-sentence paragraph about the person who discovered so-and-so formula and what they were thinking at the time. And mm. if you're lucky, you get some kind of insight. And it's always these really interesting backstories of, yeah. you know, the leisurely scholar, you know, a scholar was someone who had enough time to go and be in nature and study the world and discover these things. But then the rest of the textbook was devoted to, you know, putting this formula, these, mm. you know, mm. concepts and ratios into the service of mankind. And so I think that there's the the beauty of the wonder and the awe and the and then building apparatus to get even deeper into that. I mean, scanning electron microscopes, Hubble telescopes, all of these things are yeah. instruments to increase, you know, to magnify the wonder. But then there's also this other component of, of humanity that's just the um, the utilitarian. And so I think that's that's to me the science that um, I'm I'm appreciative for because it allowed me to drive my internal combustion engine over here and record yeah. on these little processors. But yeah. um, I feel like there's, it brings up a question that I, I would love to pose to you because to me, you know, there's, I always prefer a good question to an answer. Yeah, and yeah. the one that has kind of been the biggest that I still have no way of really grasping because it is one of those paradoxes, but I just love to kind of have you take a crack at it is, you know, in a daily life or just in the world in general, um, there's a balance of, you know, holding on and letting go of trying to control and letting it happen. And I'd be interested to know what your experience has been with that idea of, you know, forcing your will versus letting it happen. <laughs> <laughs> the, the awe and the mystery versus the control and the utility. Well, it seems like there's almost two questions there science as awe and wonder or as utility. I guess and it, I think all uh, oh, I, I appreciate scientific pursuits well both of them I guess but I mean I think when we first went to the moon that was a sense of awe and wonder there wasn't a sense of what are we going to get out of this you know um, but as far as forcing our will on life versus being receptive well it seems like we work and then we let go and we work and then we let go it seems like it's a rhythm back and forth um, between the receptive and the active um, and hopefully eventually our action comes out of a open receptive place where they're both present at the same time um, but I think we could use a little bit more of the uh, receptive and the sense of awe and wonder I, I think Gandhi is an interesting person he has that famous quote he says from the East I learned to say yes which is, you know, accept everything and realize that suffering is a part of life and, and beauty and all the rest. He says, from the West, I learned to say no. Hmm. So there we are. No, we will not have this disease. We will eradicate it. And we will um, not just accept that certain things are the way they are. Oppression, cultural oppression that's been through the age. So it seems like life is a balance. It's a yin and a yang. It's that balance between yes and no, receiving and acting. Um, 
yeah, I think they're part of part of what makes life so interesting. Hmm. What do you think? I, I mean, every day is it brings a different reflection of that question, especially being engaged in a in a world of doing business and working with other people and all of these different things. I mean, um, I've seen all sides of it. One side is the the controlling, the keeping track of all the variables, the yeah. systems and the management. And then the other side is the, you know, trusting in the people and the, you know, the faith in the process and the appreciation of serendipity and some of those types of ideas. And yeah. I mean, that's, that to me is um, just a, something I've recognized that I don't have a grasp on and it can lead to sort of the analysis paralysis when you have something to do and you're trying to figure out the best way to do it. Um, because I think I went from being very much go with the flow almost to going over the waterfall and enjoying the ride all the way down to, um, kind of now finding more of that balance between, you know, if I don't put a certain level of tension and intention into an activity, uh, the, the boat can stray off course, but it's, yeah. you know, the horse, the rider, the, <laughs> the path and the elephant, uh, what is that saying of the, the rider, the elephant and the path, and you sort of need an awareness and appreciation of all three, um, without finding yourself in undesirable places. Yeah. Well, it's a challenge. Each person has to find their own balance between those different elements. Um, I personally think we could use a lot more listening and a lot more of the space in our culture. But I see how things have changed for me. It used to be when I'd go into the natural world, I would immediately, you know, at the end of the hike or at the, at the lake or mountain or wherever, take out my journal and meditate. And it was very much a lot of just being. And then with the photography, there's a lot more of a tendency to make things into a project yeah. to where you're out there, uh, looking for something to take a picture of. So that's been a big switch for me. I too am in a more active kind of mode, but um, I still have to take times when I'm just being as well. But I think the balance between those two shifts throughout one's lifetime. But it's important to always have an element of both, I think, wouldn't you, th you say? Yeah, I mean, I think maybe you have had a similar experience, but I was sort of, I, I love the, uh, the concept of the Pratyeka Buddha in Buddhism, like the private Buddha who is looked down upon. And, uh, it, here's an individual who has attained some level of insight yeah. yet they are private. They don't share that experience with other people. Not that they go out and try and force that experience in other people. Yeah. But, um, I found myself at a place where, um, the the fulfillment in the moment and those experiences was there but the participation with other people like you said earlier you know you need two or three people in a room before you really have that that bigger thing happening and i guess um you know that that motivation into the projects and into the sharing and into the uh you know talking with more people and and being open and receptive to their stories as well as being heard like you said yeah um, I think that, uh, that idea of, of doing everything, um, to the exclusion of, of the world and its particular suffering and problems, uh, 
leads kind of to a, a boring place. I think that's kind of, you know, as, as uh, pop culture as it's become, you know, the Chris McCandless story and, you know, who knows what was really going through his mind at, at the end there, but presumably he had moments of feeling like he had chased this, this mystery and this wonder and it led him back to just the appreciation of the people that he, that he knew and loved and, and being with them even in the mundane, you know? So I guess, yeah. uh, yeah, for, for me, it's that balance of, there were, there were whole periods in my life where I wouldn't take a camera places because I didn't want that <laughs> impulse to be like, oh my gosh, that's beautiful. I need to capture it. I need to save yeah. it. Yeah. Um, I mean, and there's still a few places on this planet where if I go, I just, I, I refuse to bring a camera because sure. it's not what that place is for. But, you know, you can have those experiences forever. It's like shouting in a vacuum, you know, like the, without the, the sharing, there's, you know, it, there's not that resonance. There's not the the reflection in the mirror, I guess. So yeah, and of course that's another that's another major place of discovering deepest meaning is between two people. Various traditions have talked about that as a third force. The relationship mm-hmm. itself <clears throat> is a entity of its own. Um, so. Anybody in an intimate relationship knows that kind of, there's a space between the two. And it is a kind of silence or a listening. Um, the relationship itself personified, it's really rich. So, yeah, the fruits of silence and solitude mm-hmm. always are to be shared with others eventually. Even the monks, when they get up early in the morning at 2.30 a.m. to chant and pray the vigils, they view themselves, uh, even though they're, they seem to be set apart from the rest of the world, they see themselves as saturating the day in the silence and love before others get up. Hmm. So that when they get up, then it's already, um, the day has already been saturated in that silence. So, yeah, I think there's always a rhythm. There are times in our life when we need to... to detach and be apart from others there are times in our life when we want to be engaged and um there are other times when there's kind of a balance between the two Hmm. for me now i feel like i'm a time in my life when i need a balance of those two uh a spiritual principle is that you only have um, as much of an insight or experience as you give away hmm. <laughs> so after you know for a while you need to fill up your reservoir but then after a while you're like a canal or a stream that only keeps flowing from the source when you give it away hmm. so you have to share it then hmm. that's a beautiful thought what, what do you think about this idea of uncomplication do you, do you have an uncomplication I think that um, I would call it simplicity. And I strive for the for a simple life <clears throat> that is oriented around one thing with a lot of space to appreciate each thing as it is. Um, but I think sometimes things can seem complicated, uh, at least to describe them to people. But underneath it all, there is a very uncomplicated perspective. And what I was describing with meditation seems to be 
very uncomplicated to me. All things emerging out of no-thingness or spaciousness or love or presence, as though out of nowhere, like echoes with no original sound or mirror images without any original um, thing that's in front of the mirror. It takes words to describe that, but once you sink into that in meditation, it seems very uncomplicated to me. Hmm. Yeah. How about for you? What would you say is the root of uncomplication? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because everyone really does have a different idea. And I think for most people, and myself included, uncomplication is the idea that we can uncomplicate just by pausing or just by enjoying something that we mm -hmm. that we really enjoy so when i talk to you know my wife it is everything from you know being with our son to taking a bath and some people just love putting away the dishes or you know you you have a cleaning business mm -hmm. and kind of um getting into the moment whatever that moment might hold and it, it's not always uh grandiose but it's it's always accessible yeah. And, and I've heard that from a number of people, and, and to me that, that seems to signal that um, so many people are living in a world of complexity right now. There's all of these decisions to be made, there's all of these you know, businesses to run, or bosses you're working for, or, or right and wrong decisions, you know, which, everything from which healthcare provider do I use right. to what, do I, what am I going to eat tonight, and it's this myriad of decisions and you know, good and bad outcomes, and quite frankly, I think a lot of people do feel that, that suffering and that, um, you know, that universal human characteristic of uh, because there are moments of joy that's only set against this backdrop of, of not joy, mm -hmm. and a lot of people just want to be happier more. Most people, yeah. I think, have um, more of the negative than the positive in, in today's rat race, as we kind of talked about it, so I think for me, um, uncomplication, and it took me a while to kind of grow into that, wor that word, I wasn't really sure what to think of it, but I think it's the idea that anyone can find right here and right now everything that there is, and that can happen doing the dishes, or that could happen in the most amazing spiritual embrace with the divine or the other right you know i mean there's there's something here that's always available i think when you talk about the, the silence yeah. um, or the backdrop you know silence is is a a state of sound waves but it it is indicative of this stillness that is behind the vibration of the atom or the the, the turning of the mind and the thoughts in our yeah. head and i think just that recognition that in whatever you're doing right now there is that release, yeah, um, and it doesn't require anything. That that to me is is the biggest thing that in all of this that I'm doing, I would I, I would like to encourage other people to just consider whether they find find that or not is just this idea that there's a whole world of people out there that are doing all of these different things and different ways to live and different things to believe and different things to read and you know you can you can chase the rabbit with science you can chase it with philosophy and all of these different things and when you boil away all that noise everyone is just talking about the same thing which is just you and I sitting right here in this immense place that we can't even fathom when we really dig into it and um, 
that to me is the most complicated thing in the world. It's so complicated that it is, you know, it, it hits that duality that, you know, the paradox is that it's so complicated, it's uncomplicated. And yeah. so there's nothing I need to do about it. <laughs> that's, that's a lot of words to try and point at, at nothing, but I don't know. Um, I don't know if you feel this way as well sometimes with the the classes that you teach or the things that you share with people, but I always feel after a conversation or a project that the the core of what I would most want to communicate is always lost, Be almost <laughs> because of the process of trying to communicate it. Do, yeah. you, do you ever feel that? Less and less. I mean, there's definitely miscommunications, but I tend to choose my words more carefully these days. But I think as long as there's that space and silence and listening, I feel that something has been communicated of what I want to say, which is essentially that listening. I mean, you talk about how it's a, you're able to do that in each moment, or that's the reality that we can enter that uncomplication in each moment. And I think that's what the great contemplative disciplines of the world teach us, whether it's meditation or yoga or tai chi or mindfulness or whatever is to get in touch with that underlying uncomplication, that silence, that listening, that space, that ocean, that ground of being out of which everything comes. So uh, Chogyam Trungpa had an interesting image. He's talked about cows that are confined. You might think of a Montfort feedlot. You know, maybe they get restless and they're confined in this tiny space and he said all meditation is is providing a vast meadow for the mm -hmm. cow's restlessness to occur in and eventually their restlessness dissipates and then they fall asleep <laughs> in the meadow and that's really all meditation is is providing that space same cow just in one place they're confined and that's how we feel in this complicated world or in the vast meadow, which is that space, silence, that enables things to manifest themselves on their own. Do you, do you think he meant that literally, in terms of a physical space, or do you think that that cow is packed into the Monsanto, or I guess, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the feedlot, uh -huh. I mean, is that is that Monthly. cow have access to that same space? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's what meditation practice is. I mean, there's a reason why meditation developed in highly populated areas like Japan. <clears throat> On the other hand, you it's harder to find, say, in Native American cultures, a medita meditation method if all the time you're dwelling in this kind of spacious outdoors. But in Japan, you know, where, and in Asia, where people were packed together often, very close, people needed a meditation practice to find that space. Or to go at lunchtime to a tea ceremony, you know, it has a lot of silence in it. So yeah, for sure we find it in the city too. But it, it does take a practice, I think, to access that uncomplication in the midst of such a complicated world. <laughs> it's interesting too, and I know we're going long on time here, but it's it's always interested me that there is 
a real power to discipline. Yeah. That we, we sort of are in a culture where discipline is almost a bad word in, yeah. in some regards that we, you know, it's limiting. But I've come to really appreciate that, um, you know, discipline is what allows you to almost go beyond the, the rules. I mean, in order to be skillful at anything requires a certain level of discipline. And with these ideas of uh, meditation or whether it's yoga or whether it's just, you know, cleaning the dishes. I, I mean, I love that as an analogy because I think that's, it's almost the same thing for me. Because I, I, you know, I go to the Haruka Center sometimes and I meditate mm. and it's a great experience, but I sometimes have an even more profound presence just in you know cleaning the kitchen and um, I think that the that the idea of discipline is almost a, a lost art but it's really a key into finding enjoyment in in what we do that there is a, a strength in the limiting of our of our thoughts and like you said earlier you know the focusing on one thing um, just requires the the intention um, to do so. I'm, I'm not really expressing this as well as I'd like to, but well, discipline leads to self-esteem and self-confidence because you're in, all day long. We're pushed and pulled by other forces. I mean, even if you think you go to the computer and uh, maybe I should look at this website and see what's new there, and you're just kind of pulled by these whatever is on the internet or your own desires and discipline enables you to say no to something in order to have more energy it's kind of like discipline is the banks of a river hmm. um, if you don't have the banks of the river it becomes a marsh which is nice on its own but if you want that real powerful flowing river you put the constriction on either side of it and then suddenly you have this amazing river so I think that discipline is the same way and we desperately need it in our culture because we're, we're prey to so many different forces of our society and our own desires and desires that the manufacturers try to create. You know, um, So discipline is far from being a uh, negative thing. It's how we maintain our own sense of self-esteem. You know, you have a certain practice that you do every day. Um, and saying no, I mean, Carl Jung talked about that. He said the America suffers from a huge need to, to be able to uh, just say no to things. that You don't have to do everything that, yeah. you know, is on your plate that day. Um, and the early desert tradition, of, the desert fathers and mothers of the Christian tradition talked about discipline being like a sauna. You got to shut the door to concentrate the heat, mm. you know, um, and then you've got this, all this wonderful heat. So I think it's something similar. Discipline really leads to a sense of self-esteem, that you have some say in life and you're just not prey to, to whatever others are expecting of you or of your more superficial desires the deeper desires are then able to come to the fore so yeah discipline is a very uh, good word in fact the word you know the word that was used in the western tradition for many years was ascetic like an asceticism and that comes from a greek word which means athletic training 
Uh, so to say no to this, no to that, I'm going to fast from going to fast from this amount of TV. I mean, so I, I don't have a TV. I mean, I have a TV screen, so I can watch Netflix once in a while. But to, I'm going to. I have made a decision. I do not want a laptop because I don't want the temptation to check my email and Facebook and all that when I'm any place. So that's a discipline, so that I feel like I can think my own thoughts more. I don't have to have to see what somebody else is saying at the time. So fasting takes on a whole new um, form, I think, in our era. Uh, so for all the various types of disciplines, which involve saying no to something, anybody that wants to do anything well uh, has to practice, you know. I mean, we think of when you practice the piano or a guitar, it doesn't sound all that good at first, but you keep doing it over and over, and then the discipline of doing that brings something wonderful. Same with athletes, sports, all of it. All of that took discipline and that gives a sense of self-esteem. I love that you took the, the idea of discipline to also include this idea of fasting, not just from food, but from things in your life that yeah. make that river turn into a marsh. And I couldn't agree more that fasting from television is one of the most life-enriching decisions <laughs> that anyone can make. I yeah, mean, I, yeah. my wife and I, it's, it's kind of a funny story. Um, I think it had to do with the uh, NHL hockey strike of like 2003 or four, whenever that happened. And that was my one reason for still having a TV. And when they went on strike, I was like, oh, get rid of it. <laughs> and then just never went back. But I, I mean, I can't imagine being able to do the kind of creative things that I love yeah. and being able to... I mean, all of the things that I fill my, my day with, and I still feel like there's not enough time to do all the things yeah. that I enjoy. And I know that the average American watches, you know, five or six hours of TV a day. And I think, um, you know, that, that, that in my mind is, is a big marsh that yeah. if you, I think for a lot of people, if you're, if you're in that marsh and you watch that much television or you're that mediated, that uh, just putting up that... Uh, channel is just going to make your flow that much stronger and that much more um, enjoyable. At least I've I found that. But It's liberating. It's absolutely liberating because then we're not so prey to what others want of us. <laughs> I mean, even I don't listen to the radio usually. I don't want to hear somebody else's woes and ex their romantic experiences. <laughs> I tend to listen to music that doesn't have words more often because I want to think my own thoughts. Um, so I don't watch TV. I don't have a smartphone because I don't want that temptation. <laughs> Not because there's anything wrong with a smartphone, but I know I'd be, eh, I'm kind of bored. Uh, why don't I check and see what message there is? I'd much rather think my own thoughts rather than be forced to think the, the hurt thoughts, you know, the, the mass mentality which are not usually original thoughts. That and they're all just trying to drive you to buy something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I want to think my own thoughts because, again, I think that humans, that it's imagination uh, that is a big part of what makes us human, to, to envision things differently. I mean, think of uh, indigenous cultures. You know, you look up at the night sky and you create stories about the stars. You don't have artificial lighting to make everything bright. So it, you, you naturally enter into that imaginal kind of space and we need that space that's the uncomplication that space in order to be able to think our own thoughts and to imagine and envision new ways and um, to dream we really need to be able to dream 
So yeah, discipline is a major way to do that, and discipline is so incredibly liberating. It really is. It's counterintuitive, but I, I mean... Well, it's your own discipline. It's not what discipline that someone else told you to do. And that oftentimes is the distinction that people make between religion and spirituality. Religion is what somebody else has told you is true, and spirituality is what you discover in your own experience to be true. So similar with discipline, discipline imposed by somebody else, well, I suppose people need that. Like somebody might go into the military because they, they need someone else to impose the discipline, and then that, that leads to a sense of self-discipline. And of course, as a parent, you, know, you, you try to structure this external discipline with your kids no, don't do this, yes, do that, so that eventually they'll have their own internal discipline and um, they'll be able to say no to superficial desires and yes to what they really want in life. So I think there's a place for the external, but um, it's only to lead to an, an internal sense of discipline, um, one choosing um, the ways to be, to be disciplined in order to, to concentrate that river you know, in, in, uh, with those banks. Um, in, in the same vein, I, I have really come to embrace this idea of um, the power of limitations is sort of the best way that I can yeah. phrase it. And it's a little bit different from what we were just talking about as far as a self-imposed uh, discipline. But the way that I think of um, limitations as being empowering is coming from an art and music background, uh, the recognition and appreciation that um, great painters know how to choose a palette that to, yeah. to create a, a real and even a you know a, a great photograph is that balance between what stands out and what recedes and you can't do that if you use all the colors all the time and the same with music um, you know I'm, I'm not the best musician but I really enjoy it and one of the instruments that I most enjoy is the bamboo flute mm. because it is such a simple instrument especially like a five-hold pentatonic scale and this realization really came from playing these flutes where they're they're so expressive and they're so powerful and you can tell stories with them all using the same five notes yeah and just as a, an individual who at a time was feeling like I wanted to know everything I wanted to know what's behind music how can I you know what is the flute with all the holes I want to I want you know the biggest possible picture there was this sort of moment of appreciation that uh, in the hyper limitation sometimes there is amazing creativity yeah. that, that even you know there's blues musicians that built their own instruments back in the 20s that you know had one string and they could play the most soulful you know deep and moving uh, pieces of music and I guess what that did for me was come to embrace my own limitations which there are plenty and it also has allowed me to hear the music of others with kind of a clearer mind. Because I can sit down with a friend who might have a different belief system, but I can appreciate how their limited system and how they see the world and how my limited system and how I see the world, even though, yes, I can sit down next to someone who holds a different view than me and I say, man, you're not considering this, you're not considering that. You know, you can have those arguments, or you can just hear the music that they're playing and then find the notes on your own limited instrument that kind of play well. Yeah. There might only be one. Um, but uh, for me, it's, it's been an analogy that's been particularly uh, transformative where it comes to relationships I have with people who might have gone a different direction in life or right. who you know, hold very different values. Um, and you know, I, I just kind of offer that as, as food for thought because I think it kind of plays into that 
discipline idea in a way, but it's almost the, you know, discipline is like the self-imposed limitation, right. whereas um, the appreciation of, of all of our limitations, I think, has the potential to, A, allow us to just forgive ourselves for being limited, because we're all limited, right. and B, to really embrace um, other people in their limitations and uh, appreciate that you know, someone who is who's playing a really simple tune, who might not include all of these pieces of information that we would wish they had, um, there's a there's a real beauty and balance to some of these compositions that are very simple. Um, yeah. Well, limitation is what causes us to need each other. Hmm. The fact that we don't have it all means that I mean, it's that's the glue that keeps us all together. We want to know another person's perspective or they have a skill that we don't and we have a skill that they don't. So it's not ever something to be ashamed of. It's what binds the cosmos together. Um, but yeah, I mean you might say in a cosmic sense if the divine is this kind of unlimited presence, it would never know itself. It could never know itself if there wasn't something to bump up against it. You know, so you have distinction and division, and uh, it's the whole yin and yang principle. You can't know, you can't really have consciousness unless there's distinct things to um, contrast with one another. I mean, that's the huge principle in the photography. That's why we like, you know, sunrise and sunset when the shadows are the longest. You want the most contrast because then things will stand out the most. And the camera is a pretty limited instrument. But when you um, have those contrasts, that's when you get the most beautiful photographs. It's a lot harder at noon. So, uh, yeah, I think that's something to celebrate, is that the limitations of life, even though we don't really want some of the physical limitations that might come along, or mental ones, um, if we can learn to find the, some find the beauty in, in the midst of those. I mean, that was Thoreau's whole principle, you know, to live in that cabin and um, it was very small and he, he really had a lot of limitation, but it enabled him to see the beauty of life. Uh, there's one analogy, if, if you keep the pot, if you keep the pot small, like you think of a fountain, um, the water will overflow a lot quicker than if you keep making the container bigger mm. and bigger and bigger uh, and then the, the water never overflows huh. so that's what the discipline of simplicity is which is a form of limitation it makes the container simple enough that the water overflows yeah. I mean you think of a little kid in a parking lot you know sees this piece of trash and it's you know a green piece of trash I, mean, I haven't seen this before he picks it up and the mother goes oh that's yucky put that down but to the little kid it's just the most amazing thing this life isn't filled with all these complicated um, tasks yet huh. and I think that's the principle of limitation enables us to be in awe and amazement at the simplest things Emerson Ralph Waldo Emerson said he he thought that for the poet, water is the, the drink of choice. Water turns into wine. Hmm. Um, yes. Yeah. Simplicity is another, I think we could probably spend a whole afternoon talking just about yeah. that. But I mean, I'm, I'm here in your home and it's, it's very simple, but it's very beautiful. And I, I appreciate 
that and what it makes me think of, especially as we talk about some of these natural settings and even photography, is I, I love how in the desert or in a really arid, rugged place where you just have sand, dirt, rocks, and maybe a few shrubs, that because the, the, the overall um, contents of your surroundings are so few that every little blade of grass sticking out between you yeah. know, sand dunes just takes on this, this presence. And I think in a similar way, you know, having fewer objects but having ones that are really beautiful or, or special is a way to make them really shine with the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the radiance of what they are as opposed to trying to get more and more things. But I'd be interested, uh, you know, just in the amount of time that we have, and what, what is simplicity to you and how does it play into your life? And Well, it is that space that you're talking about that enables you to consider the specialness of each thing that arises. So yeah, simplicity is um, saying no to too many activities and too many commitments and uh, and disciplining your thoughts and bringing a certain spaciousness and openness and sense of presence to everything that you do. So it is that limiting of when you can, limiting the number of things that you're going to do or think about, or possessions, in order to be able to appreciate things one by one, for sure. Yeah. I guess you're a lot more likely to appreciate one shirt if that's all you've got. Yeah, yeah. And I too, in in the photography, I love to focus on one tree surrounded by snow, or the desert is amazing, like you say. I had posted a picture the other day of one, um, one Lambert crazy weed on a Badlands, you know, dry dryness, and that you just really appreciate that, that one bloom. And it wouldn't be that same photo if there was a whole stand of them, or no. Yeah, so um, simplicity really helps us find the specialness of life. Uh, especially needed in our complex society. But there's another kind of, you know, uh, we do have a flow of things constantly happening. So the question is, I mean, all of the contemplative disciplines seem to be based on that kind of having a space in which one thing can appear at a time. Well, what do you do when you have a multitude of things all appearing at once? How do you practice simplicity there? And I think there's a kind of an ability to find that almost a seamless flow between them as as you're engaged in these various activities or thoughts just step back just once in a while and see that they're all flowing there's this one particular place at Yosemite National Park it's called the Silver Apron it's a, this section on the Merced River uh, of this smooth granite I don't know maybe 500 feet long where the, the, the water just rushes down it's almost like it's like a million ball bearings and it's this, mm. this seamless sheet of water you know and I'd love to just sit there it's only like I don't know maybe six inches deep huh. and you can get right up to it you know and just see this seamless sheet of flow so I think that's in our in our time where everything's constantly moving that's another way of finding simplicity um, and uncomplication is to be able to attend to the, the flow of things almost like a you know um, a dance where everything is a movement in a part of a flow that never begins and never mm-hmm. ends so using the the breath you know attention to the breath as a part of that flow is one way to do that um, or having some sort of a 
mantric phrase that you mm -hmm. use that you know that connects all of these disjointed things together into a common flow is really a challenge that we have in our time now to find simplicity and uncomplication in the midst of that stream of things that have to be done. Mm -hmm. So for me, just bringing up the image of that silver apron section of the Merced River in Yosemite helps me connect, yeah. you know, imagining everything I have to do as a part of that flow. And I love the idea, like you're saying, it has no beginning, it has no end, and then you think of a river and you say, well, it has its headwaters and it has its, you know, terminus where it enters out into the water, but then, you know, like... The water cycle. <laughs> yeah, the water cycle <laughs> turns to clouds, it rains, and it goes all yeah. back again, so... Yeah. And I think that that's a, a great image for daily life because a lot of people find themselves thinking in terms of getting to some destination yeah. or things being very linear. I think we sort of have, from whatever source in our culture, an idea of linear time that yeah. we're born and we progress and we arrive mm -hmm. and um, there's, there's something really beautiful about thinking in terms of rhythms and cycles and yeah. um, not not knowing where where the end really wraps back around. Mm -hmm. Yeah, at, at, uh, in some places in the southwest they call that tortilla time. Tortilla time? Yeah, it's like in those solar observatories, say at Chaco Canyon, you know, hmm. the sun rises on this place in the horizon and then a few degrees, hmm. you know, to the north, to the north. And anyway, time is viewed as this sort of cycle, a hmm. tortilla. Uh, instead of a straight line. Huh. Well, I'm just going to throw a, a wild card. Um, in this idea of linear time, um, what what do you think is waiting for us when we're when we die? Um, I think that's the huge unknowing. Uh, but my hunch is that we somehow uh, it doesn't matter as long as we're kind of go back to a, a larger whole uh, and we're part of something bigger so I my job here on this planet is to uh, to come in contact with that larger whole so I'm ready maybe when I die um, I don't know that it's necessary to continue the same individualized kind of consciousness after this life I know a lot of people feel threatened if they don't have that but I've had enough uh, experiences of losing myself in uh, a blissful kind of on a mountaintop with the sun shining and you just sort of lost into this spaciousness. Something continues, but I don't think it has to be an individualized kind of consciousness. So I'm firmly, I firmly believe that we, we do become part of a larger whole, um, but what exactly that will be, well, I guess we'll have to wait to find out. Hmm. It's like that water in the stream trying to imagine what it's going to be like to evaporate yeah. and go back into the cloud. Yeah. Something remains, but it will be a surprise when we find out what that is. But just by the look on your face, I can tell that you have a, for lack of a better term, you know, faith in, in what we're doing and what, what it's all about. Yeah, I believe firmly in evolution and that includes spiritual evolution. That we, we really are evolving as a species. Um, evolution 
cultural and spiritual evolution is sort of like climbing the great sand dunes in southern Colorado, one step forward, half a step back. <laughs> Um, but I, I firmly believe that we are uh, evolving as a species. We are becoming more conscious of more and more things. We're able to hold intention, more and more different perspectives. We're being asked to do something the human brain and mind has never been asked to do before, which is to take vast amounts of information and perspectives and hold them together and integrate them. Um, and that, so that's something that's happening. We're learning how to, to put those together. Um, and it's, it's, it's a challenge, but we are evolving to be able to um, find greater and greater holes. I think that that's what evolution is, is about. And the ability to, to be constantly introspective, that is to look at one's own biases, to be constantly aware that one has a perspective and that it's one of many perspectives. You know, a, a cultural, personal, personal perspective, gendered perspective, religious perspective, philosophical perspective, to know what those are. In other words, to know what one's colored glasses are. To not think that we just look at life through clear glasses, but to be appreciate that it's a green lens or a blue lens and someone else has a purple lens or a yellow lens. Um, so that's another part, I think, of, of spiritual or cultural evolution, become more and more aware of what our biases are so that we can... Um, we can be aware that there's something beyond them. Mm. So that and, and the ability to have uh, focus our attention on larger and larger holes. I'm very hopeful for the future um, that, that that's where we're headed. Mm. So, do you, do you think there's any threats present to that happening? Oh yeah, I think, I, I mean they call it, uh, psychologists call it ego backlash, which is every time um, every time we make an advance in our personal life, there's something kind of, um, uh, what's the word that drags us back, that word? Um, Whiplash. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a backlash. There's something in us that wants to drag us backwards, entropy maybe, something that wants to drag us backwards um, to what's comfortable. So I think the same, thing, the same thing happens in cultural evolution. We've got this huge move. I mean, the Internet and, and so much of our technology is, has made our world so wide, and so we have to take in so many different perspectives. So then we have fundamentalisms of all sorts, mm -hmm. political, cultural, religious, and that would simply be the, the move to say, it's too complicated, I have to shut it all down and just focus on this narrow... Um, area of truth and so that's that is happening all over the world is that kind of ego backlash on a cultural level where something in us doesn't want to move forward because it's threatening so we focus on just a sliver of the beauty instead of seeing the whole world of beauty but I think that that's a temporary phenomenon the thing to, to that that worries all of us is if our technology develops to where we have weapons of mass destruction or whatever uh, that that get ahead of us you know that where we would destroy vast amounts of life before our consciousness is able to fully evolve. Um, so that's definitely a concern uh, that our technology run ahead of us and get in the wrong hands. But I think, you know, I have trust that even if humans aren't the species that's going to carry forth evolution, there will be something. <laughs> Uh, but I would like it to be humans. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because you talk about weapons of mass destruction. I think weapons of mass convenience are almost more threatening. Uh, the ability to replace 
the skills and uh, potentials of a human with you know computers yeah. and automation and those types of things. Uh, you have a, a planet with seven billion people, and you keep removing the need for that many hands. Um, yeah. But at the end of the day, I, I think I, I definitely feel that there is something happening on this planet that is what the universe does. Sure. And that's sort of blossoming almost as a flower from basically stone tools and you know this this long beautiful childhood that we had of yeah. you know the pastoral earth and and that kind of thing to mm. all of a sudden these you know technological marvels that when you're talking about integrating this whole I mean yeah. the the ability of these giant data banks and all of and all the information that's being processed and and, mm. and kept track of is is really beyond what the human is capable of on its own but somehow you know together we um, we bring that earth consciousness into unimagined mm-hmm. uh, potentials that and that and that to me is one thing that has never ceased to blow my mind that there's a famous quote in the um, you know industrial revolution where I forget who said it but you know everything that has that can be invented has been invented or the idea that everything worth in being invented has been invented when they had you know the steam engine and those types of things, and I love how um, whether you want to think of it as an, as an intelligence like like God or just a flow of the universe or something, that there is no limit to the surprises that can arise. Uh, just I mean where things are going with this virtual reality and um, you yeah. know, artificial intelligence is so beyond our ability to even imagine it a hundred mm-hmm. years ago. And I'm sure that even when we cross that threshold, there's going to be something beyond that. Um, so I think it's humbling, personally, as a human, to to be from the main event to being more of an enzyme in a larger yeah. uh, organism. But I think that there's also that um, beauty that I see, at least, of um, being a part of something so big and miraculous and and unimaginable. Um, even if it's in service to it as sort of a drone, um, you know, the, the honey wouldn't be so sweet with all those little worker bees, without all those little worker bees. And, um, yeah, I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of going on a rant here, but I think that there is that potential for people to feel, um, you know, fearful by the, the progress that's being made, and especially what that does to a human life and uh, the service that we that we find ourselves into these hierarchies and systems and 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 everything but in a certain sense I see it as that um, that consciousness that that cutting edge of evolution that you were mm-hmm. talking about um, riding that wave like we are um, it's really scary because you know are we gonna fall but at the same time I mean wow what a ride I, I... well what we contribute to it is the sense of warmth and love yeah um, I mean I don't think a machine could ever take take the place of what we have to provide, which is a love that suffuses it all. So maybe computers can provide the databases of information, but we're still needed to show how it all puts together, to marry it all together, you know, um, in meaningful ways. So I think there's always a place for us. I really do believe we're the mind and heart of the universe. Um, and so if we get away from thinking we're just here to serve our own little individual consciousness but we're here for a vast consciousness that 
suffuses all things with love, hmm. yeah, we'll be okay. Beautiful. Well, I don't think we could have concluded any better. Um, <laughs> yes, I, I'd certainly like to thank you. It was a pleasure to meet you and spend this afternoon with you. Um, is there any closing? I don't think so. Let's just uh, enjoy the silence here. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, Stephen. Thank well, you very much. Thank you very much. much. Yeah. Thank you, everyone, so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Um, this was actually a edited down version of the full two-hour conversation that Stephen and I had. Um, and if you enjoyed some of the content here and want to go a little bit deeper down the rabbit hole, uh, I will be posting a longer version of this interview on our Uncomplication SoundCloud channel. So uh, thank you everyone for listening, and until next time, cheers. <laughs>